0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. When we explore our human evolutionary histories as they have been told so far, the central theme is often on the male experience, the hunter, the conqueror. How did male fertility traits impact relationships? And yet, what is most central to human survival? Procreation and raising the next generation, which inherently should involve the story of mothers and children. It's under this lens that Drs. Leslie Newson and Peter Richardson approach a new way of thinking about our collective evolution in their new book, A Story of Us, A New Look at Human Evolution. I had the chance to have a wonderful conversation with them about this new story, what it involves, and what it means for all of us moving forward. If nothing else, it should get you thinking. So let's get started. I am so happy to have with me today, Drs. Leslie Newson and Peter Richardson. They are a couple who are the authors of the book, A Story of Us, A New Look at Human Evolution. Dr. Leslie Newson studies the cultural evolutionary process known as modernization, which most human populations are now experiencing. She also works at being the mother of one child and the grandmother of two. Her first degree was in biology, and after that, she worked for over 20 years as a science writer and television producer before gaining her PhD in psychology. Dr. Peter Richardson is the Distinguished Professor Emeritus in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy at the University of California, Davis. He is best known for his work on cultural evolution. He's currently president-elect of the Evolutionary Anthropology Society and past president of the Human Behavior and Evolution Society the Cultural Evolution Society, and the Society for Human Ecology. He is the author of Not By Genes Alone, How Culture Transformed Human Evolution, along with Dr. Robert Boyd. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. I am so excited to talk about this topic. Before we get started on talking about the book, which we really is the focus of our conversation today, how did each of you become interested in studying human evolution? Where did this stem from?
1: Well, with me, I, I I think it began when I was before I can remember. I I used to be interested in where everything came from, and I think it was my father at one point started talking about apes and things like that. And it just seemed to me, and I'm I think I think you and your your listeners and viewers think the same thing, that you can't really know where you are unless you know where you come from. And if evolution is where we come from, that's what we need to understand. What about you, darling?
2: With me, it started as a teaching assignment when I was a brand new assistant professor. I uh, was hired into a uh, interdisciplinary uh, unit, uh, the same one that I'm still a member of, and uh, about half my colleagues were social scientists and half of them were natural scientists, and I was trained as an ecologist. And my sociologist colleague uh, asked me to help him teach a course called the Principles of Human Ecology. So... I had some training in evolutionary biology and it was kind of obvious to me that culture was a big deal in, in humans. So
1: I, w- I went
2: looking for, uh, uh, some information to support a lecture on, on cultural adaptation. And I knew vaguely about some anthropologists who talked about uh, cultural adaptation. So that's where I started it. But their evolutionary story, uh, was, uh, it's pretty limp really there just wasn't much there and i finally found one interesting essay by a man named donald Campbell, who was a sort of a polymathic uh, psychologist and and uh, he, uh, had some, he had some an interesting essay on cultural evolution and, and so that's what i used to as a basis for my uh, lecture but it pretty soon became clear to me that there was really a research project there. Uh, uh, Campbell's essay was basically we could do this, and but he didn't do it. So uh, uh, Rob Boyd and I, uh, I was teaching a different course with him, and I fell to talking with him about, uh, about these matters, and we decided there was a research project there, and we're still working on it.
0: <laughs> That's the world's longest research project, but I guess that means it's a good one because there's lots of right. questions to
1: come up.
2: Right. It was, yeah, it was an unplowed field. So it was really uh, sort of a died and gone to heaven moment when we decided that there was a research project where was so little had been done.
0: So just quickly going to, because you each have your PhDs. So now what I'm gathering, Peter, is that your PhD research really wasn't related to any of this then, was it?
2: I studied plankton in lakes. <laughs> I studied Lake Tahoe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a, it was a pretty big shift of, uh, of interest.
0: And Leslie, your PhD is psychology, and but you did that after. So did you tie in cultural evolution to your PhD or did this still kind of stem after the fact?
1: No, 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 it, 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 it was what motivated me to get a PhD. So um, like so many people who have children, you get more and more interested in as you as you spend time with them, they, you find they're fascinating and you want to know more. And, and I'd already read a lot of stuff on human evolution, popular books, you know, books from bookstops. And I just started reading more and more. And then the, and I got really frustrated because, I mean, I mean, I knew from my biology training that evolution was all about producing children and raising them so that they can produce children themselves. And they and all the books I was reading was about sex and war and and like men beating their chests and, and hunting and being the best hunter. That's why women wanted to have sex with them. And and I thought this is just not on. And they kept saying this isn't culture. This is inside ourselves. This is our genes. These, these are instincts. And and I thought, well, but culture is surely like important. I mean, you know, culture is so important to humans. One, we need to know, like, why do we have this culture thing? And two, why, why do we need, um, you know, how does the culture itself evolve? And so that, so that was what motivated me this kind of, you know, I was very lucky because I, I my daughter was in school, and so I had to find a university nearby that would take me and that that all happened. But I, I was saying this kind of dual thing, like, we need to talk about women and families and children and babies. And, and we need to talk about culture. <laughs> so so I, I went into the library after they accepted me and I could finally find these walls and walls of books that were totally different from what was in the bookshop. And that's when I came up, 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 upon Pete's book. And, and it, it was really one of the most demoralizing experiences because I realized that I wasn't a genius. Like there was this other human being in the world. In fact, two of them, that were doing exactly the same, had the same ideas as me, and they like they'd taken them forward so far, and um, and so that, so yeah. So that's how I got interested in in evolution.
0: And now I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I'm going to mention it because that seems like a poor starting point for a relationship. But you two are married. I mean, I haven't heard a relationship where you start and someone says, I came across them and man, it was demoralizing. That felt just horrible. I,
1: I, I, no, I, I came across his book. Yeah, I, I was really, I was really annoyed, you know, because you think I'm a genius, right?
0: So obviously, your PhD led to some of the work and it led to you two coming together and then collaborating on this book, which is a completely new look at the evolutionary history of human beings. So what was the, I mean, outside of just the sheer interest, but what really led to this collaboration for the two of you? I mean, you're both busy, obviously, with life and other work. So (laughs) what was the impetus to get this out together and now?
1: Well, I felt that there are loads of people around in the world that are interested, like we are, in In what evolution can tell us about ourselves and so I thought it was so so important to update the story of evolution to make it not just being about men (laughs) to be about women and children as well and to be about culture because the story is totally different and the thing is that the academics in this field are more and more realizing it and yet if you listen to the public discussions there's still there's still they're back in the 1990s they they're still talking about genes and instincts and things like this and and not not really putting it all together and and i thought we just need a new story because if we have a new story um pe- and people find the book interesting and find the story of their ancestors interesting it'll help us understand ourselves better and and so anyway Pete. Pete was hoping to reach a wider audience too. so we we tried to write a book that would I don't know I don't know if you thought that it was in a kind of an interesting book for a wider group, not just scientists.
0: Oh yeah and I think that's part of the interesting part is that it speaks at a level to everyone can understand it, I think, especially the use of stories through the storytelling, which we'll get to I mean because that was a really fascinating way to. To do this, so actually, I might as well ask now. I mean, so this story—you've broken it down. Let's get into the nitty-gritty of the story of us, um, and you start by using stories to elaborate on each of these different areas that that we'll get to. Why the use of stories? Because it was fascinating, and I did love it as a reader. But that is so different from the way we think about how we've talked about evolution and our history before.
1: Yeah, it just seems that stories could do so much work. I mean, it's extraordinary because as a scientist, you're always making up stories. I mean, what's a theory? What's a hypothesis other than a story? But if you actually personalize the story and try to get people to sink into that life, it's like they start doing their own ethnography and they start to see the problems that that character has in a way that would would, would take paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs to explain in any other way but if you if you just kind of say well imagine being this I mean there there seems I hate to say the word instinct having just rubbish the word instinct but but I do think there's something about the way our brain works when you say well use your imagination here and everybody goes oh okay and then and then they can sink into it and and see it in a in a in a different way and then it, it comes alive in a way that it can't if you just give examples and give data and evidence and stuff okay. like that. So
0: let me ask this then because it did come to mind. So my my background, my supervisor studied um, theory of mind, curse of knowledge kind mm. of ideas that we are cursed by our own experiences in our limitations mm. in understanding others and whatnot. And so thinking about different cultures and Pete, this is your, you know, there is obviously culture has transformed humans and in different ways. How good do you think we are at being able to read these stories without relying too much on our own cultural lens?
2: Well, I hope that the stories are engaging enough so that we uh, we get out of our skin. That's the whole uh, the whole objective of novels, right? Is to get us out of our skin and put us in uh, behind the eyes of some other person. I think of the stories as a is a form of science fiction because you can't tell a joined-up story about the lives of people that lived a million years ago or a hundred thousand years ago. It's just not possible with the uh, paleoanthropological record is too can So everybody that tries to tell a, a joined-up story is going to be telling a science fiction story. You you you, you can tell a story that's consistent with the science. You don't want to you don't want to tell any. Uh, Uh, scientific untruths. On the other hand, if you want to tell a joined-up story, then then you have to fill in the details that are absent from the record. And we call the book a story of us, not the story of us, because other people could tell other stories. And as a matter of fact, as the uh, paleoanthropological record becomes better, uh, the theory becomes better, we'll have to tell other stories, because there'll be Flaws in, in will turn up in the story that uh, uh, that we told in, in the book. Uh, so it, it, I think it's it's a disciplined way about uh, thinking about how to uh, present the science to uh, uh, to uh, to other people that uh, perhaps uh, don't know the, uh, the scientific facts so well. So we try to do our very best to keep to the facts, but on the other hand. Uh, we want to make the make it a vivid story and so we do a little science fiction exercise we try to be upfront about that so it's not like we're 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 trying to pull the wool over anybody's eye Uh, it's the the whole idea is to is to make it fun to learn about the facts and and well, uh, that's the objective of the of the stories, in my mind. Uh,
0: and I think it does. I think when you tell people, "Oh, you want to read this book on evolution," some people kind of, oh, "Really? That's that's what you want me to read?" <laughs> and you know, if you can present it in the way, "No, no, no, really, it's worth reading. It is." I like that use of science fiction, though. I never would have thought of it that way, but it's true. That's exactly what it is. Um, So I want to take a step back for a minute, because I think anyone listening, not everyone knows all the dominant theories. So they may have heard Leslie, you mentioning, you know, the sex and and the the, basically the male centric focus of our Mm -hmm. stories, but not everyone is aware of what the dominant narratives have been about human evolution. And so I don't know who wants to take this or both of you in different ways because there's a lot of different takes on evolution, but what were the dominant themes that you were really highlighting or, or wanting to get us away from that have been out there just for the people that may be like, Oh yeah, I do know that is a theme. Cause I think many people treat some of these themes as fact. And that mm-hmm. is where I kind of want to veer them away from that as <laughs> thinking that, no, this is how we have viewed history, and it's the only thing that matters as a factual statement there.
1: As you say, there are a lot. Can I just concentrate on one thing? And that's thinking. So. It you know, thinking is a really hard thing to think about because. And so computers computers came along. Right. And we go, oh, thank goodness. Now we can talk about think we can think about thinking it's what computers do you know process data taking data spit out data and stuff like that so that's that's that, that, that was that was what it is and so so uh, because thinking is so important for humans especially for people who are interested in evolution it all became about computers and so what we we are computers who make other computers that's what you know our, our, our children have brains and we we you know we grow up and and they develop their brains and they surprise us with what they come up with and all that but the thing is that up until then I mean the idea of, of computers being thinking should have changed completely in the last 20 years because we suddenly realized we don't think on our own we are like mobile phones we sit around and we have these apps and we and we interact with other other mobile phones and other computers and clouds and things like that. And that is what we need to think about when we think about human evolution. How did we become these animals that don't just go through life with with a brain in their head? How do we become these animals that are totally connected to all the other animals? How did being connected up and, and creating new organisms that are connected up? How did that evolve? That's extraordinary. And, and um, so, does that, sorry, does that answer your question? It seems like the others, the other stories were too too much about animals living their lives alone and interacting with the environment and not living this incredible connected up life that humans have.
0: But no, that does make sense. And I, I do, I see that because so much of when we think about just the sex drive, for example, it's a drive of one person <laughs> irrespective of the will or desire or whatnot of other people around and how that affects or, then the mating and the beyond and the the, the cultural group that's there
1: people the rules you? about sex i mean all yeah. the rules about sex i mean there are you know there's people who say oh this is so wrong and other people say this is wrong. where does all that come from <laughs> yeah Yes,
0: that is a very good question that I'd love to know the answer to. Pete, what about you? What was, what's the one theory that you really hope you can kind of get people away from?
2: Well, I think that uh, the uh, tools that the, uh, that the uh, modern synthesis uh, of genetics and evolution left us uh, don't have any room for, for uh, culture, the, uh, any fundamental room for culture. So the, uh, the, the, uh, one of the uh, most important, in the minds of the uh, modern synthesis, one of the most important things they did was get rid of the, any ideas about the inheritance of acquired variation. But culture is all about the inheritance of acquired variation. And so the tools that, uh, that the uh, evolutionary biologists uh, uh, brought to the table in the, in the 60s and 70s, and, and uh, still to this day, to, uh, to a large extent, uh, are pauper. they just don't have any place for culture and uh, boyd and i persuaded ourselves uh way back in the in the 70s that uh, culture is really fundamental and it affects the evolutionary process in fundamental ways that has been our whole uh, uh, our whole work is devoted to that idea and we think that uh, uh it deserves a uh, a wider audience. I mean, there's a lot of work going on now. I mean, we were pretty lonely back in the '70s, and, and now we're now it's hard to keep up with the with the field. and And this is something that I don't think uh, uh, most people appreciate. And most of the successful, popular books to, uh, for uh, about human evolution uh, take this uh, by my way of thinking, uh, 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 highly biased, but. Uh, genes are primary uh, uh, point of view.
0: That reminds me of, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about the struggle to get people to understand epigenetics, which would interact exactly as you would say. I mean, culture defines our environment. And if our environment interacting with our genes is actually what defines our behaviors and how we grow, you can't have it without understanding the culture in which something takes place. Because sure. that will dictate the expression that, yeah. So I'm going to jump ahead a bit. And I apologize for going around. But you say things that make me think of stuff. And I want to go back to this notion of connection. Because I think that is such a crucial piece. And it seems like each stage. So you you the book goes through different evolutionary stages, right? As, as you've broken mm-hmm. them down. And it seems like each one is based on a change in connection that we've kind of been going towards can you talk us through i mean i think we all think about connection as a pretty basic idea right like we have this connection i have a connection to my child i have a connection to other people but as you guys talk about those connections get very simplistic to very complex what does this mean for our evolutionary history how is this idea of connection so crucial To each of our stages? And how has it propelled us forward to the next stage as we've gone? Why are we not going back in connection? Because it just seems like maybe that's, you know, we talk about today, we're at a stage where we're connected to everything um, (laughs) all around. And sometimes it feels overwhelming. Sometimes we look at it and kind of say, this is not where we want to go. Yet, it seems almost impossible to go backwards from that. And so, can you kind of walk us through from the beginning of time with that connection piece? Just a, a, a brief history of evolution in a few minutes here, based on connection theory, as to how this all plays a role in in your story for
1: us. Okay, I'll 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 do that. i will be practicing. <laughs> um, so 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 it starts with the idea that there is a connection between mothers and babies. This is this is what mammals are all about um this incredible connection between mothers and babies um and the, the thing about apes because our ancestors seven six or seven million years ago was definitely an ape and it lived in a forest and it probably had the usual the mothers probably had the usual connection uh with their baby and the babies had the connection with their mother and that connection was pretty complicated in in apes because not only did the mother have to love the baby and protect it, but also the baby had to watch its mother all the time to learn how to be an ape because it was hard to be an ape. They lived in a complicated environment. They had to forage. They had to do this. And so it didn't just inherit the the genes from its mother. It inherited a whole bunch of know-how, like, you know, how do you open up this particular... Piece of fruit, and what's okay to eat, and what's what's not okay to eat. So, so that connection had a big inform, information flow. But one of the things about eight mothers is that their work is so hard because it's just them, and they have this baby that they. It takes years and years and years for it to to. To grow up. So it's clinging onto them or sitting on its shoulders or, or whatever. It's always there for five years until finally it's picked up enough information to be able to even have the slightest chance of being able to survive. Isn't that extraordinary? And right. it's only possible, I think, because it lives in a forest. So so the forest, the the tropical forest, is full of lots of little bits and pieces of, of food. And so the mother can sit there. And just eat as much as it can, and feed the baby as much as it can, and the baby slows, and it is that. But the problem, what was happening with with that with the forest, you know, starting about when when is it, darling? About four million years ago or so, the forests in Africa started to shrink because of climate change, and so any animal that could get out there and start exploiting a different habitat would be would be fine. But how can you do that if, if your way of life, you, raising children depends on living in a forest? So what I think happened is that some mothers got together and basically did childcare for each other. And, and so rather than one mother, the, the bond only being between the mother, there started to be a group of mothers who, who brought up their children together. And so that, that created more connections. More connections meant more information flow. More information flow meant different kinds of workings going on in the brain. And, and it also meant that they could get out of the forest and start and start to, to explore this whole whole new kind of habitat out there where the food was a little harder to get, but there was plenty of food there.
2: Uh, but th- another angle on this is that uh, uh, cultural evolution itself uh, doesn't work nearly as as well if uh if the network that uh, kids and and for that matter adults are exposed to is limited so the uh the, the what's useful about uh culture is that it can evolve faster than than genes so it can adapt uh uh organisms to environmental changes uh, and th- it, to do that it, it, most smoothly or, or most swiftly you have to be able to uh, pass information uh readily around uh, so you imagine that you have a, a have an abrupt uh, a cooling or warming of the climate and everything is fruit card upset all the things you used to do are now uh, uh, fraught. And th- there is enormous pressure to adapt, to, to adopt new techniques. So there, are, uh, uh, if there's a population of, of people out there, a large population, all trying to find the, uh, out how to exploit this uh, new environment. And then when somebody makes a little discovery, they, they pass it around. And so that means that uh, uh, the cultural evolution of new techniques can pr- uh, proceed quite swiftly. It, compared to certainly compared to genes but also compared to uh culture if if it's only mom that techniques that you see you can't you're stuck with what mom did if 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 it's mom and auntie and 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 a bunch of other people then you can sort of you can sort of survey and if if uh, if uh, if your cousin's way of, do, of preparing food for example is superior to to moms, you can adopt the cousin's way of doing it, and that uh, uh, then potentiates uh, uh, cultural evolution in a really important way. So the the network's scale is is important. Now, it's also uh, fraught with other problems. So so you could so for example, you might uh, uh, be tempted to imitate some technique that that somebody over the hill has, but if they're living in a different environment. Uh, uh, because of spatial differences, then that's a, that's a mistake. So, so you, you, it's important to regulate your social networks in a way that sort of optimizes that between getting the wrong idea from, from some stranger uh, and uh, uh, getting a new idea that's, that's valuable. So uh, people are, uh, are strategic at, uh, uh, about how they acquire new information. Uh, and so the, uh, that also tends to regulate networks. So we have ethnic uh, boundaries or other symbolic uh, boundaries. And so, we—if uh, you're a doctor, you don't want to listen too much to lawyers, right? Because You might get the <laughs> idea about to uh, practice medicine and vice versa. So, so we have all these subtle little uh, uh, cues that we use about whether to include somebody in our social network or not.
1: But we had to—we had to evolve. We had to evolve a brain that could do all that. And it it began very simply, I think, with these mothers and babies and children. Um, And it might not have even included males, the males might have gone off, Um, but obviously the males came back. (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) we think that by by about a million and a half years ago, certainly, there there were groups of interconnected males and females and children um, exchanging information um, and then and then sort of allying with other families and exchanging information. And and the brain became better and better at at, at dealing with these connections. So I just want to
0: pop in because something um actually that you said, Pete, reminded me this idea of learning from just one person. And it's the same lesson as what you're saying. You have just mom for a while who you learn from, but when you have this bigger group, you know, you get to pick and choose who you're gonna listen to and everything it reminds me of um, the argument between even just to, to bring it to a modern context of this kind of early specialization versus this range. I don't know if you know, there's a book out there that came out last year range by David Epstein kind of arguing against early specialization for kids that the more we expose people to the more they make connections. And I was thinking it's not just the ability to look at other people, but to say, you know, which I think leads to this exponential growth of, okay, mom does it this way, auntie does it this way. What if I kind of blend both of those into my own new way that leads? Is that a fair argument that that's also part of the the push forward is it's not just who you copy, but that you can start to create new ideas as opposed to happenstance coming across a new way, the way we might think about in genetic variation.
2: Right, so uh, uh, a recombination of, Uh, genes and culture is, is a really important thing. So lots of innovations are taking one simple thing and, and applying it to uh, uh, to another simple task that nobody ever thought of before. Uh, so my favorite example of this kind of thing is is string. Uh, so uh, uh, <laughs> okay. string is, uh, I mean, think about it. Uh, it used to be everybody knew how to make two-ply string uh or practically everybody did you had to make your own and and it's i mean uh, i have a certain idea about how to make string because i've read about uh, some of the plants that are used but i've never tried to make a string and and yet this was uh once before industrialization of string making this was a uh, uh everybody knew how to do it and and strings are are massively useful right so uh, for uh, any number of different things uh, you can you can uh tie things up uh, uh you can use it as cordage or you can make uh, baskets out of it or or nets uh, you can uh make clothing out of it if you make think of it as string as yarn rather than as as common string then you can weave it into into clothing and and the uses of uh of uh, simple string are are almost endless and and clearly uh not every society makes every use possible of of portage but uh, uh, and so there's always another thing you might use a a string for (laughs) out there
0: I have a newfound appreciation for string that I didn't
1: think I'd get. from but Living with oh, heat is like this all the time. You'll suddenly come up with something. I've never heard your string story before, darling. Is
2: oh. that right?
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: So so we get to the point where we've got these basically cooperating females. This reminded me of um, Katie Hind and some others you probably know, wrote a paper. Years ago, yeah, doing the computer modeling on humans it yeah, that cooperating females. Yeah, I was I
1: was a co-author on that paper. Oh, I
0: mean, these are still greater connections, and so it just goes from there on. And I mean, at some point, it seems like we went, and I think you argue it's kind of this after the ice age, we went through this very complex connections more. Like, it is there is that a fair assessment that really up until then we had just more building of the connections but it feels like that was a real transformative shift at that point during
1: as the ice age started and the climate started to get really crazy um well the Andertals went extinct the denisovans went extinct you know all the humans went extinct except for a few <laughs> our ancestors and I think that it was the I mean, it's it was because they could they form connections, they could rely on each other. And like Pete said, everything was going crazy, and they could adapt. you know, they were probably a bit lucky too. But but I think that forming those connections and maintaining those connections was vital to their survival during that crazy, difficult time that we know, we know existed. And during that amazing time, they they flourished, you know. They did the cave paintings. They made all the, the the different things. They made music for the first time, as far as we know. They 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 did all these extraordinary things.
2: One of the hallmarks of the uh, last ice age. Well, the last ice age was the most uh, highly variable of any ice age, apparently. Uh, and uh, the the uh, coring work still needs to be done in the early lower Pleistocene and. The story is still pretty sketchy, but uh, it seems as if the amount of abrupt climate change in the in the last ice age was double what it was in the previous ice age, and uh, those in the previous two ice ages were more variable. And ones is still more ancient, so it seems like there was this ongoing increase in the drumbeat of, of climate change, and in modern humans in the in Europe, that's Europe is the best known. Uh, because there have been paleoanthropologists mucking around it for a, more than a century in in, in Europe and less time in other places, and and so uh, the story is is still quite incomplete on the global scale. Uh, but it the uh, uh, the stylistic similarity of people in the uh, in the last Ice Age, the Gravettian tradition, for example, those, those uh, famous Venus figurines and and other diagnostic artifacts are the same from from uh, uh, from Russia to the Atlantic and from the ice margins to the Mediterranean. So uh, uh, it seems as if uh, these people, there was an original European Union, if you want. There was one culture that uh, spread over that whole uh, region, which is very different from the. When we get to the Holocene, then then cultures get chopped up into much smaller pieces. The population. Density goes up, but the uh, uh, but the lo- localism becomes much more important. Whereas and it seems as if in the last ice age the uh, uh, people were thin on the ground, but were uh, uh, maintaining uh, social networks over over vast areas, so far more far larger areas than in the Holocene. And so uh, that uh, suggests to me that that uh, Knowledge exchange was critical to coping with these uh, high-frequency uh, uh, abrupt climate changes, and that uh, people were deliberately and with effort maintaining these uh, networks in, in order to uh, be able to adapt. Uh, quickly.
0: Amazing! Um, this I see what you said, Leslie. You, Leslie told me you were like an encyclopedia of knowledge, <laughs> and I, I've got.
2: It. <laughs> I don't know.
0: And page Maybe 372, the what's there? That's
2: the- <laughs> just a yarn um, spinner. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um okay, so we start. I mean, because you say the focus, I want to get back to this women and children business because this is, I mean, the core of, of this difference here that really stands out. And so when we look at women and children, we see the beginning stage, we see you know, getting us out of the forest, your your thoughts that it, it was groups of apes getting together. But how do women and children play the story going forward then? I mean, fine, it gave us that basis, but arguably, how is that more important than sex and, you know, males showing their strength and <laughs> coming out of everything else? Why do we focus outside of that first connection of just the transmission of that first knowledge, that cultural
1: knowledge towards
0: a younger generation?
1: Well, all of this stuff you're talking about, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, the, the warfare, the hunting, the none of that matters a damn if it doesn't mean, it doesn't help to promote children getting born and surviving and growing up to be good enough to do it for another generation, to give birth to children, to keep them alive, to teach them how to be human, and start all over again so I mean we have you know this culture thing whatever else it does it needs to keep everybody's nose to the grindstone of producing the next generation and and it does that best by not making it seem like a grindstone by making it seem like a really cool thing to do and so so you know this is it it was hard getting men to kind of help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they could they could just go off and do other stuff, right? But what culture did, what the most successful cultures did, what our ancestors did, was work together to raise children. And there's this um, wonderful woman named uh, Siobhan Matheson, who's come up with a theory about the what is it that is it the just the expendable male or the disposable male or something like that? It's um, so she's looked at different uh, groups, and there are some groups that have um, that are very patriarchal, and other groups where the women own everything and everything like that. And, and, um, and the thing is, it, 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 they look like these incredibly modern people that are really cool. But the men don't do a bloody thing you know they they just they just sort of sit around <laughs> and it you know and the most important thing after all it was a hard life The most important thing is you need their help and it and and if culture evolves in such a way that you can get men to help with the big animals and plowing and all the hard stuff war and all that if you can get them thinking it's really important and give them a bit of power it's worth it if it makes you have kids if it helps your kids survive and so so culture works in much more complicated ways it's you know we we can't um we can't necessarily just think it's bad men grabbing power you gotta let them have a little power so that they'll work for you <laughs> pete what's your take on that one <laughs>
2: I put a little different spin on it. <laughs> not not that different. So humans are are uh, not quite unique, but they're very unusual in amongst uh, mammals and and uh, uh, apes in in the fact that that men can, males contribute to the raising of of kids and most uh ape societies that all the males do is fight over over who has access to women so they're they're completely useless as far as moms are concerned (laughs) except for their genes and all they contribute is their genes and and at some point in human evolution guys got put to work Uh, and in most societies guys work pretty hard Uh, and as as leslie and siobhan uh say uh there are these societies where the ecology is such that uh, that women can, uh, usually these are tropical horticulturalists, although not, uh, not exclusively. And, uh, and, not, and I uh, have a friend who was an expat in Zambia, and uh, he started a little charity and I was uh, uh, put on the board of his charity. We went to, uh, once to Zambia to uh, advise him. And he took us to see this Woman who was also on his board, and, and she was interested in in development in the poorest villages in in Zambia. And her her recipe was get the guys to work. Uh, women are Zambian women were working around 2,000 hours a year, which is full time work. And uh, guys were uh, typically in these villages. Guys were working 500 hours a uh, a year. So there was. If she said, if there's going to be development in, in these Zambian villages, it's going to be because, not because women work harder because they can't work any harder because we get another 500,000 hours out of the guys, uh, uh, good things will happen. And yeah. So, uh, but in most societies, in most uh, periods of human history, they, we are getting, you guys are getting 2,000 hours out, <laughs> out of the guys. <laughs> uh, so that's the, one of the secrets of human success, it seems to me, is to is to put the guys to work. Yeah.
0: It, although I feel like, I mean, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, because this is all fascinating. I hadn't heard of this theory, and now I'm like completely blown away by it. But um, <laughs> it feels to me like, can you go too far with that? Like you look at a patriarchal society today, and it almost feels like you know we passed on, we tried to get them to work and made them feel they're important. Did we go too far in (laughs) getting them there? Is that what's happened? Like, have we really just gone too far? Or have they just become mad with power? A combination thereof? Because it seems, you know, I think back to, um, I mean, my goodness, even just what, 100 years ago, in Japanese society, where women ran the budget, And they were so although males were put to work, but they weren't given control over the earnings of their work. So they were given an allowance that was dictated by a female in the house and allowed to live as she saw fit. And it feels like they got that idea down of you need to get to work, but I'm still going to oversee that work. Um, And we kind of missed that boat there here, didn't we? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, uh, men are, I think it all goes back to a simple fact that men are, are bigger and stronger and meaner than than women. And,
1: Wait, and But they're useful. I mean, but the thing is, the fact that they're big and strong and mean makes them really useful. I mean, you wouldn't want them to be little things. Um, so... <laughs>
2: it's trade-offs
1: right that that's what evolution is all about it's all trade-offs and you're never going to find the perfect system you're going to kind of go along you it's all a pendulum right it's never going to be perfect because as soon as you get it going on nicely the ecology will change and then suddenly you'll go oh god we need the men to go out and and fight now they're going to they've got to give they've got to die for us okay (laughs) off you go
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it no out in my mind that uh, that some men sometimes, and many men, in a in a few cases, uh, throw their weight around and and aren't very nice. Uh, <laughs> adaptations are never perfect, and, and so there's a lot of a lot of rough stuff goes on. I'm afraid.
0: So. I mean, if we, d- and, and but it's true. And, but I mean, bringing us back to our culture today, because I think these are crucial pieces that have kind of shaped where we're at. Like with this discussion here, I'm just, my brain is going to all these different places, but one of them is also now the argument that our our dual care system, of uh, like the typical family nuclear family has actually done us a disservice um, in terms of childbearing. Cause we aren't able to have well, some families have many, many kids um, and there's that fitness, but it's really not very common in nuclear families. You have one or two. And when you think about this from an evolutionary fitness survival, if the whole goal is, you know, again, to have children and to pass on that cultural knowledge, I see, you know, the nuclear family being a stumbling block to that, but also our culture being so incredibly non-supportive of families Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. we we look at families are marginalized in many ways in our culture and so I'm just how what were the what were the features that got us here how did we get to this stage where our core evolutionary feature of reproduction and passing on oh the third is I don't I mean I know we always have cultural knowledge I get that like no matter what even the absence of of cultural knowledge is a form of cultural knowledge, but is it, I think about looking at, um, for example, uh, I've been reading a bit on, on indigenous teachings and parenting, and they have a culture, they have Mm. a sense of who they are and how it relates to their histories and everything. And I, you know, coming from just a a North American Anglo-Saxon perspective, I don't have that. There isn't, I was never given a history or a culture to, to tag on to. And so when we think about an evolutionary theory, that's based on families and culture, and we seem to have evolved through that lens towards having neither.
1: How did we get there? What happened? Well, I guess it's urbanization happened. Um, it I mean, people are always trying to go for what they can get. I mean, and at one point, if you have a, I mean, if you produce a large family, the the youngsters have have to leave eventually because you can't they can't just all stay in the same place. They they have to disperse. That's true of any animal. And and with with the technological change that's happened in the past three or four hundred years it became possible for people to to leave their family and join other groups the family used to be not just the place that that raised children it used to be kind of the main social institution i mean they they raised children they educated children they organized um labor they they looked after the sick they the i mean what else was there there was a king maybe <laughs> or an emperor or somebody, but they were offering many services. All of the, the life services happened in the family. And it's really only been in the last 300 years that you started having people leaving the family and being part of other groups that provided services, whether they be working for a business or going to a church or joining an army or a team. I mean, think about all of these. It's all new, all, all very recent. And so the family became less important to every single one of us. And as soon as, as soon as the family was no longer the fundamental place in which children grew up, lived, be, worked as part of a team in, as soon as that happened, um everything had to change. You know, it, it had to become less family oriented. And and it is it is a problem. Oh, and the other thing you were saying about. About uh, about having a, a family culture is a lot of the people who passed on that culture were the older children to the younger children, and so and so now children get so much of their culture from like television <laughs> rather than rather than their older brothers and sisters and, and yeah it's it's so different.
2: So uh, I think the interesting contrast is, uh, is the. Uh, modern family like like we participate in uh compared to the north american anabaptists who uh have basically sealed themselves off from modern influences no television no no uh uh movies uh, uh and they stigmatize uh, uh modernity basically and uh, so they have uh, they still have a very traditional family system if you went back to uh uh, Northwestern Europe, uh, four or five hundred years ago, uh, and compared to Anabaptists, to the, the peasant families in uh, in Europe, it wouldn't seem very different. Uh, but the uh, Anabaptists uh, have uh, uh, basically uh, 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 sealed themselves off from modernity and and still practice the same uh, village scale. Uh, uh, cultural systems that uh, were dominant in, in Europe in centuries past. And, and, they and still... they're
1: having tons of kids.
2: I mean, right.
1: and, and you know, the, whereas everybody else is having maybe on average of 1.5 child per, per woman, they're having eight or nine. And, you know, the population of Anabaptists relative to the rest of, you know, non-Anabaptists is, is just, just, and... The future, <laughs> the future might be Anabaptist, whether we like it or not.
2: Yeah, I've, I've estimated uh, with a simple extrapolation of current trends that uh, about half the North American population will be Anabaptist in in a couple of hundred years. Uh, uh, so uh, there, uh, it's still a very successful way to to have babies. Is is the old-fashioned way and 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 of course the Anabaptists are not uh, not mindlessly uh, 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 traditional either. They adopt new customs if they if they think they fit in. So they're uh, avid consumers of modern medicine, for example. They uh, they suffer from a, uh, because of their historically low populations. They suffer from a lot of uh, uh, inherited uh, diseases, uh, uh, recessive mutations, and. Uh, uh, so they are avid consumers of uh, genetic counseling, for example. Too. So if the if, uh, pre- prospective couple have the wrong genetic combination, they won't get married. Uh, so uh, it, it's a it's an interesting contrast. And uh, if modernity in other words, uh, modernity is not sustainable. We talk a lot about uh, ecological sustainability, but it's not demographically sustainable either. So if we have uh, fewer than replacement kids, so then uh, we're going to die out, right?
0: Yeah, well, exactly. That's what makes it seem like it's, we've kind of gone in the wrong direction here for it. Not saying that we need to go the extreme other route, but I mean, there has to be this balance. So, I mean, thinking about that and in terms of going forward, what are your predictions, your thoughts about, our future trajectories? I mean, are we, I mean, you have that one analysis, but do you actually think that that's going to be it, that we just start fading out and
1: Anabaptists take over the world? A lot depends on what we, on, on what, on the decisions we make. Um, probably by the end of the century, that whatever Anabaptists do, the human population will be declining. It will be a lot older. Um, I mean, the we worry more, it seems, about what coral reefs, what's going to happen to coral reefs and what's going to happen to humans. But uh, I don't know. Uh, it'll be they'll, already there's much less warfare because there aren't so many young men to fight wars. Um, in the countries that do have a lot of, of young men, there tend to be more wars. <laughs> it's um, the, the the immigrant um problem will 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 stop because most of the countries that you know are producing a lot of young people who tend to be the immigrants their 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 population their their birth rate is going down too um it's going to be a it's going to be a different world in the future and and we can predict that now and yet people don't seem to be thinking much about it i mean i think the most important thing is to think that motherhood is great because I mean I I, I talked to an astrophysicist the other day who said it's a woman she said you know people think astrophysics is hard but it's really simple compared to being a mother (laughs) and yet and yet everybody says oh let's encourage girls to 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 be astronauts or whatever um when it's and it's supposed to be anti-feminist to say, let's encourage girls to be mothers. But it's a hard job and deserves a lot of praise and support. Yeah, for sure. And that's a change I'd really like to see. Pete, what are your thoughts on the future? I <laughs> want to come back to the
0: motherhood thing in a minute, but I want to hear Pete's <laughs> thoughts on the future first.
2: Well, uh, I'm a scientist, not a not a prognosticator, I guess. I, I, don't, I mean, you can make these uh, extrapolations uh, from present trends. Uh, but we all know that that uh, present trends uh, uh, change in the in the future. So the the uh, the future is uh, uh, well. There, there's a famous aphorism: uh, 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 prediction is hard, especially the future. And I think that's uh, attributed to uh, uh, Casey Stengel or somebody. But uh, uh, it, so yes, the. Uh, I'm hesitant to uh, to go beyond the obvious, which is extrapolating uh, present uh, trends, which we know won't uh, uh, is not adequate to predict the future. But then nobody's got a, a, a better tool. Uh, so I think that the future is. I think uh, human life uh, or life of any organism really uh, as an adventure. You're you're. Going off into the unknown, the, the future is unknown. You're going to cope some way, and you should think of it as an adventure and, and not pretend like you can, can predict the future. Uh, but uh, I mean, uh, take personal computers. Uh, nobody predicted personal computers. They just, people built uh, uh, the first uh, uh, chips that uh, became the central processors of the. Uh, personal computers for entirely different uses and then and then some innovators uh, recombined those uh, those pieces and and made the first co- uh, computers and they became very addictive things and and off things went and and uh, so uh, if you read old predictions about the future they're always hilarious so, so that's in order not to make a fool of myself i'm dodging your question <laughs> <laughs> better, I, better
1: to- Better to write science fiction about
2: the past than science fiction about the future. True,
1: true. Although I I was going to say, except The Simpsons seems
0: to do pretty good at finding a bunch (laughs) of predictions. If you ever go back, they managed to nail quite a few. So I feel like we just need to go back to all their old episodes as to what the future holds. And uh, we'll go from there. So I just to go back to this idea of the future, but without prediction, so maybe I can get an answer out of you, Pete. when we think about these things, we know we have the trends, the concerns, Leslie, you brought up motherhood. And so it makes me think, what are the changes we should be making today to maximize the chance that we have a better future? Given that I think some of the trends are not where we might want to go, whether that's good or bad, there's no judgment on it, but we do think about future trends and lots of people are like, yeah, I don't think the future holds some very bright things coming up. Um, and what are the areas that we should focus on today that might help us make our ideas and trends even less likely than, as Pete pointed out, they already are useless, but let's make them you know more useless than that. What can we be doing today to reach that?
1: I think we need to support families, not just with resources, not just making families more secure, but we should also talk it up as a thing to do. Um, I think that families need to be bigger, not necessarily because they have more, not not necessarily because each couple makes more children, but but I think that children need to be to grow up in an environment with with other children, um, with cousins, not necessarily genetic cousins, but they children need to help bring up one another. They need to have responsibilities. They need to learn that they are part of a team, and they're not just little princesses and princes that have to be waited on hand and foot. Um, they, the family has to be a functioning unit, and we need to. And that, there needs to be more, more research into how that that that's possible, and it needs to matter to every single person their own personal happiness and sexual fulfillment isn't isn't the thing. (laughs) In
0: In the moment it may be, but in the long
1: run (laughs) I'm saying this from a position of great age, not experience.
0: It's you know, what you describe actually reminds me of we have a bunch of Canadian geese in our backyard. We live on a river, and there's a family. They come back every year because the mom nests, right in the the cat cattails that we have down by the river. So every year she does her thirty days of sitting and not moving, and you watch them all protect. And so we've learned about them because it's just been a wonderful observation, but it sounds like kind of that's what it is. You know, the males, the kids stay on for at least a year and then the males go off while the females stay on and they learn and you see them engaging. You can tell by the size, you know, who was kind of last year's babies that are still coming up. And they're all learning how to protect mom. You know, they're getting food and, and doing all these things together. It's not, and we see mom and dad, they're still, you know, biggest coming around when they show up. And, but it's this group unit of, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, real cousins or uh, well, siblings, but also then there's all these other, you know, just a bit down the river is another group of geese that also go through their period. And you will see them when they're not invading on nesting territory they're quite interactive with each other and they will engage together. And it's fascinating to see. Cause it's like, that does seem like a really lovely way to grow up. I don't know where the men go at one year of age though. I'm not, they, they go off on their journey. Um, and I don't quite know what that involves and I'm not sure I'd be happy to send my child off at one, even though I know logically, obviously <laughs> they're much older <laughs> in their age terms, but, um, you know, even thirteen. I'm not sure I'd want to be like go on your journey now. But um, it does sound like that is that's what that reminds me of, and it's beautiful to see. And it's you know obviously been a very helpful way in previous times for us to to raise people. So, Pete, what about you? Can that can you answer that question? Is it fair to throw that one at you?
2: Sure, uh, <laughs> fair to throw any question at me now? Whether, but I might duck on on some <laughs> questions. So it seems to me that one of the things that we ought to be doing is, is experimenting perhaps more than we do with uh, uh, with different kinds of, of family structures. It, obviously, in the long run, uh, if the inherit the people who inherit the earth are going to be those who had babies. And uh, uh, so that's an, uh, sort of inescapable. Uh, now, how we accomplish that in the context of the other manifest uh, uh, problems that we have with uh, modernity, I, I mean, so it seems to me, for example, that uh, uh, our uh, quest for affluence is, is killing our planet. And so one of the things we have to do is is uh, stigmatize affluence, not admire it. And uh, certainly we need uh, uh, resources to, to be happy and survive. but. Uh, uh, we don't need as much as we uh, as we have, I don't think, yeah. and uh, so uh, it seems to me that uh, that we should be uh, as individuals experimenting with uh, uh, ways to uh, uh, change these things, but also collectively, we need to, uh, uh, as as you guys have been saying, we need to support families, and uh, that's. Uh, uh, as uh, sort of a uh, uh, given, and some of that can be through uh, uh, through state aid and things like that. Scandinavian countries do a uh, much better job of, of that sort of thing than, than we do. Uh, so there's some there's some sort of global best practices that we can can adopt. Beyond that, I don't think anybody's got the secret to uh, uh, making modernity sustainable. Yeah. And we need to figure that out. If we if otherwise, I mean, otherwise, it's going to be the Anabaptists, which is fine. I mean, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's <laughs> that's a, a biblical prophecy. Uh, I, can go with that. But uh, uh, we might want to hope that that our kids and grandkids have uh, have some place in the in the future.
0: It and I'm sorry, I keep saying you know one last thing, but. You just said something that that made me think about the idea of culture, because I think so often, at least when I, I talk to families a lot about this, and they feel like they are separate from culture, they kind of pit themselves, their parenting, their ideas that I have to go against culture. And yet they're a part of culture as well. And so I think is it fair? I think so often we think about these individual as an individual, what can we do? And it feels like as an individual, nothing we do changes culture, but mm-hmm. that seems now, you know, and even I've been thought of that at times, like, Oh, we're going against the grain of everything without thinking of if enough individuals go against the grain, that is cultural change. That right. Is that You're
2: exactly right. So, so individual, um, uh, initiative, invention, recombination, uh, if when you decide to adopt some new uh, uh, innovation that's on offer, or decide not to, that's uh, that's the uh, the molecule of cultural evolution. That's the the, uh, the 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 basic process by which culture evolves. Is you make I make decisions about what to do and not to do, and there's a lot of things on offer out there, and. and Picking and choosing is one of our, from the uh, point of view of uh, cultural evolution, one of the most important things we do. Even if we're just we're just a molecule in a in a great uh, in a great compound, it's still uh, the the uh, basic element of cultural change.
0: Well, if you think about molecular motion, that one molecule is bumping into something else, which continues everything bumping. So every bump changes the direction of every other bump in it. Right. 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 So, so are there any last thoughts on this and where, what are you guys doing now? Where can people find you? What, what work are you doing? Um, All these things. Cause I have a feeling, I mean, we'll have the book listed in, so the show notes, everyone can look and the book will be there, which I strongly recommend reading and you don't have to be an academic to read it. It can be open for everyone because it is, science fiction um
1: (laughs) but and and some evidence as well uh, and some
0: evidence as well we'll throw that into no of course there's tons of evidence as well but it doesn't read like a textbook um so where are you guys right now and you know in terms of work are there projects you're working on that we can look forward to
1: um continuing from this well with me I, i mean i was a journalist and i got a phd and i and I realize that I, I feel that I am a journalist still. And, um, and so I, I guess what I'm trying to do, because you and I, you, we've, we've talked about some pretty weird stuff. And, and I'm, I'm struggling to figure out how to, how to make that more mainstream. I mean, and so, so yeah, I'm, so I'm looking at ways of, of, of building on the book, maybe writing another book or writing articles in order to, to try to help people see things more, more in the way that I think they need to be seen, because, you know, cultural evolution is real. Yes. And is there a spot that
0: people can find any of the work, like a website or anything?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah, we need to work on that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is that is one of my projects. Um, Pete had had this wonderful website, the University change their policy and and um so we, we have to build another website I I don't know that you know universities are always doing that they're saying are you is it okay that you give out these articles and things like that so yeah we'll,
2: so we, if, we'll
1: organize it
2: so if uh, people want to find uh, uh my papers uh, the simplest thing until we get the website up and running again is is google scholar uh Uh, Particularly because of funny spelling of my last name, uh, uh, I'm real easy to find. And all my papers, almost all of them are available. And and people can email me. They can find my email address easily. uh,
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah,
2: And uh, uh, send me an email and ask me for uh, copies of things if they can't find them some other way.
0: I just have to thank both of you so much for being here today. This has been amazing. And again, as I've said, I really hope everyone take, go read the book. It is amazing. And it is the kind of story of evolution that we need to focus on because as you put it, I mean, it's about women and children at the core of everything. That is how we move forward. And to ignore those stories is to ignore a huge part of who we are and we can't understand who we are without that piece. So I thank you again so much for being here. I will have all the links in the show notes and uh, we will send people your way to check all this out. And you guys can be, you know, educating others on string and everything else. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you. For having thank
1: us. you.
0: Thanks so much for letting us talk about our obsessions. <laughs> That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it and it at least got you thinking about where we've come from and where we're going. Join me next week as I sit down with Dr. Levita D'Souza to talk about a paper looking at the associations of parenting styles with emotion regulation in infancy. And not only that, but how these intersect with socioeconomic status and race. I believe the findings of this paper have important implications for understanding parenting in marginalized communities. Until then... Happy parenting.